0: Where is the button? Push the button.
1: I just remembered a really terrible song from like the early Northeast called Push the Button.
0: Yeah. Chemical Brothers. it?
1: No, this is like... This was, like, by some British girl group that was, like, made by X Factor or something like that.
0: Yeah, I thought like it was, like, this: this Chemical Brothers thing. It was, like, push the button. My finger is on the button. Well,
1: oh, that sounds familiar as well. No, this was something. Push the button. It's buttons. one of these songs
0: that I, I really hated at the time because it was every other Sugar f- song on Babes. This the... is Sugar Babes. Okay.
1: They're in a lift, and then they push the button, and then
0: <laughs> <laughs> they get off the lift. <laughs> I think this might have... <laughs> It was a different time back then. <laughs> Stories were much simpler.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, uh,
0: I, I just remember the Chemical Brothers song because um, I hated it because it was every other song on the radio that I played. And it's very repetitive. And if it then the song gets repeated a lot, then you just very quickly grow, grow super old of it. Um, but now I actually hello quite like and it. Welcome
1: to Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where we talk about the Chemical Brothers, the sugar babes <laughs> and plants.
0: <laughs> yeah these are pretty much our topics my name is Joram hi
1: I'm Tegan hi
0: yeah and uh, how have you been how's your sourdough doing
1: uh it's bubbling happily but I did actually make bread with it and the bread did not taste very good so I don't know I don't know something 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 it just like it, it rose fine I, I cooked it like not quite long enough so it was mm-hmm. like a little bit um had a little bit denseness at the bottom because it was like hadn't fully finished cooking when i took it out of the oven but it just it just kind of tasted like hot flour it didn't really have like the bready like yeasty flavor in it properly so i Mm. think um i did quite a short rise so i used my sourdough culture and i also added some um dry yeast and only rose it for a few hours and i think like it needs more and i also did a really quick kneading in my thermomix um and i think it needs more of like more kneading to get more gluten and more um did you add salt a little bit but n- probably not enough like it tastes like it didn't have enough salt in you it have as well, to add quite
0: a lot of salt to like uncomfortably yeah. large amounts of salt like 12 grams, four, I mean, I love grams salt. Of, of flour or something it's just like
1: that's pretty much what i put on toast normally i'm just <laughs> i mean you, you've seen me i drink like six liters of water a day and like don't tell me that's a problem it's fine it's normal <laughs> but because of that i'm happy to have much salt in my diet
0: and i also drink yeah. a lot of water and stuff now so Um, now
1: i drink tea liters and liters of tea
0: yeah i I really got into sourdough stuff although i hated sour breads before like in germany we often do rye sourdoughs and pretty much exclusively rye sourdoughs and rye and rye has a very sour flavor on its own if you just use the flour already and then Mm. if you uh, then make it into a sourdough it's just like like lemon bread it's not it's not great i i don't quite uh, i don't really like like it a lot but I, I think um, like that
1: with some salmon, like some sour, uh, um, Philadelphia and some salmon on it is just like there
0: are some like, yeah, there are a few spreads where I enjoy that like this, but it's not my go-to everyday bread. But I discovered that you can just do like a wheat sourdough. I mean, it's not a big discovery, but it's not a traditional German. You thing. discovered it. I, I personally, yeah. I went out and on, on an expedition actually um because and i like found
1: the white man discovers i found <laughs> like discovers. a native a
0: native tribe and they were using that i was okay, like enough
1: ah. stop back away back away <laughs> okay no um, made i i, I yeah. read
0: about it somewhere and now i'm doing wheat sourdough stuff and turns out they're really nice because that adds a nice like mild uh, acidity to the bread and now i'm baking like a french recipe for baguette that's like a mixture of yeast and, sourdough and um, like goes on like over with overnight proofing and lots of stuff like this. But um yeah, now I just eat a ton of white bread. Uh which is quite good. I quite like it. And it's really <laughs> good bread. And also getting actually... good baguette here is super hard. So I'm a very really happy that I'm now self sufficient in terms of baguette.
1: Well done. <laughs> yes can take that off your bucket list this has now become like a a bread podcast basically i'm
0: mean, i not even joking when i say that this was a major challenge and life goal for me like i think ever since i started making bread i tried to make baguette and they were never good they were like all they were just like good enough but they were not proper baguettes like fine but not like yeah yeah so i I would still whenever i was in france i would just like buy tons and tons of bread and just like eat the, the baguette there with butter yeah, because actually it's so heard good
1: your your ridiculously long rant about how germany has terrible bread which is absolutely not true germany has great bread and how france is like the only country in the world which has good tre- bread which is also absolutely not true like their bread is great but like they're different types of bread but they're both amazing
0: i know fr- fr- french bakeries are the best bakeries in the world
1: you know what we can both agree of the three England has the worst bread or Australia has like the absolute worst bread. Our bread is the thought where like you can get an entire loaf of bread and you should be able to like smash yeah. it into like a golf ball sized bit of dough. And that's, that's what we call bread. This is, um,
0: it is true. Yeah. I, I just remember soda bread. Uh, I think I tried to bake it myself as, as well because it's supposed to be a very quick bread because it doesn't need to rise. And I, I really don't care for soda bread. And I think it's like the main thing you get up there in the UK, right? Uh, and no.
1: Actually, I'm, I'm not sure I've been, yeah. We should get on with some plants and some plant <laughs> stories. So, um, should we do the paper of the week?
0: Let's do the paper of the week. It's the paper
1: of the week. So, we have a bit of a complicated story this week about the paper of the week. So, Joram chose a paper which sounded quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and I agreed to do that paper without looking at that paper in any way. And then, about which is a couple always a of a very hours good before, setup. We <laughs> <laughs> which is a good yes, setup. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Let's do this one. <laughs> I was
1: like, "That sounds amazing. Good choice, Yoram. I support you. Let's do that." Ra <laughs> rah. Did not look at. Did not even open the document. The link he sent me. Um, and then, about four hours before we started recording the podcast, I opened the document and realized that one of the scientists on the paper is somebody who. I have had experience of them not being very inclusive and being kind of a jerk. And as you know, on the podcast, our motto is don't be a dick. And this person was a bit of a dick. And we're not going to say who it is because that doesn't matter. But we don't really want to promote those people. They're doing fine. But that kind of made us change our mind and do a different paper. So we came up with something a little bit at the
0: last minute. Yeah, to me, it's very important that we do what we like here. Like we present things that we generally think are cool. And this goes both ways. If there's something that we generally don't like, and even if it's sort of for a meta reason, um, I think it's important that we also like stay true to ourselves and decide against these things, even if it means that we sort of have to last minute shift our preparation. Um, um, But yeah, so we have a different uh, paper now and you chose one, right?
1: Yeah, so I chose one that is called dun, 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 Circummutation and Growth of Inflorescent Stems of Arabidopsis thaliana in Response to Microgravity Under Different Photoperiod Conditions. And it's by Yuan Yuan Wu and from the lab of Hui Qing Zen. Sorry if I pronounce those um, wrong. And it's at, from the um, Chinese Academy of Science in China.
0: Yeah. Uh, So what is circumnutation? Something that is already hard to pronounce. Um.
1: Yeah. Um, So... I chose this paper because I kind of love the idea of plants moving in different ways. And it's because, like, I remember when we did biology, when we were first in school, like, you know, junior school, 10 years old, and you're learning about biology, and you learn there are certain things which you have to do in order to be life. So you have to reproduce, you have to respire, you have to respond, you have to grow, you have to move, you have to uh, eat, maybe, something like this. There's kind of like these... these different i think there's seven things that that are required to be life and i remember the movement one was always really problematic because like there was growth and there was also movement but movement is something when you when you think of plants you're like well then plants don't really move like Mm -hmm. bugs move and even like microbes move but like plants don't move and and in school they would always say yeah you know plants move when they grow so that's kind of okay like as they grow they move (laughs) yeah that's actually not even the case, like if you look at plants, they move in a whole lot of different ways and they're always jiggling around and dancing and, you know, moving towards the sun and I think sunflowers is really the the famous example of the sunflower head kind of moving with where the light is during the day.
0: Yeah. Sorry. Uh, but even on a smaller level right like every plant leaf has the stomata that open and close in response and this is the, the process behind that is the same process behind many of the other movements which is like changes in cell size Absolutely, yeah. and pressure um, so yeah they actually move a lot but at a different sort of time scale than what we're used to right uh, or eh. like either in a physical scale t- or in a time scale.
1: Yeah, either too small to see or, yeah, too slow or something like this. Um, yeah, so circumnutation is this movement, which is kind of, um, I don't even know, how how do we best describe this? It's basically almost like um, a top movement sort of thing. It's not spinning, but it's kind of like wobbling round and round. And the best way to imagine it is... Um, like a a tendril of a plant climbing around a a wire or like climbing up a piece of stick but a lot of plants are kind of doing this sort of um
0: yeah, what, what is this?
1: What is this called? What is? How do you describe this? Yeah, it's
0: like a rotation of of the head. Um, it's like swinging around. And yeah, if you when I googled the word "circumnutation," I actually saw a runner bean, like a, a thing going up a stick, and then you have this characteristic sort of rotation of the tip around the object. And even plants that don't mm. climb, they do that. Even Arabidopsis, when you do like a time lapse of it growing, it sort of has this rotational movement. Off the tip of the uh, the the emerging spike. The inflorescent
1: spike for yeah. the yeah, for the Arabidopsis yeah, and people have kind of wondered like why plants do this and what makes plants do that so obviously growth is one of the big factors so as things grow this kind of um changes like the, the different rates of growth changes how much um like oscillation the circummutation there is so arabidopsis for example when it's going through really fast growth it can kind of do a circle in like an hour or even like half an hour whereas when it's growing much more slowly it can do it in like more like eight hours or even basically stop doing this, this movement. But there are also some other abiotic factors which kind of affect how much circumutation is going on. So um,
0: There's like light intensity, uh, the photoperiod, mm-hmm. so how long the day is, is it, is it a short day or a long day, which re- relates to the, the season the plant is growing in, the temperature or mechanical stresses. So if there is restrictions, if there's something that blocks the movement, um, then obviously it sort of reacts to that. yeah so
1: despite what my biology teacher told me it's like it's not just movement because only because of growth it's also other things influencing it and in fact they've shown that if you stop you can stop the circummutation without stopping growth so there's some possibility to uncouple the growth and the circummutation
0: yeah and when it comes to what's underlying what is the mechanism behind what is like driving this um, there are a couple of um, theories there's the, the idea that there's an internal oscillator and in, in plants we always um, talk about a circadian clock or circadian rhythm which is sort of a 24-hour cycle that is independent of the light regime outside it's sort of an internal clock in the plant that drives a lot of processes and it could also drive this uh, circummutation And there's also like biophysical mathematical models where um, the uh, gravitropic response plays a role. So gravitropism is uh, a very complicated word for sensing gravity. Um, So Mm -hmm. in plants you have, uh, I think, in the roots, but also I think in other cells, you have sort of heavier objects. It's like dense crystals of starch, I think, that sink down within the cell because they are denser than the surrounding cell and so they go down towards the gravity um, and the plant can s- sense that and then knows where's, where's up and where's down so it would always grow towards like the roots grow, grow down downwards and the stem growth upwards mm.
1: and that's actually yeah quite intuitive but quite amazing that I mean obviously a plant needs to know which place to put its roots in, which direction to grow its roots in and which direction to grow its leaves in. And it needs to be able to tell where gravity is basically to do this. Yeah, basically the the authors wanted to see kind of what the role of gravity was and what the role other things like photoperiod played. So the aim here is specifically to separate the photoperiod effects from the gravity effects. Um, And this is because there have already been experiments where people have decided to remove gravity from the equation. And how they removed gravity was?
0: Uh, With anti-gravity growth chambers. No. um, No. (laughs) No, what they do (laughs) is... To take
1: plants.
0: (laughs) They put plants in space, um, put them on on satellites or space stations where they are in an an orbit where they experience microgravity. So where, yeah, the gravitational forces are much lower, I think, like three to four orders of magnitude lower than what we have on Earth. Um, So... Mm. It's not exactly s- zero gravity, which is a, sort of the common term for it, but it's very small gravity, so they're pretty much floating.
1: So before this study that we're talking about today, there was already some study where they looked at sunflower hypocotyls and also the inflorescence, I think, of Arabidopsis um, on the International Space Station, and they found that there were still oscillations happening, which means that there can still be oscillations with, as Laram said, basically no gravity But in this study, they're like, okay, but what happens with um, the photoperiod? Can we decouple that effect from the gravity effect and see how that is working on this circumnutation? So what they did in the study was take Arabidopsis saliana and grow them under long day or short day conditions um, on two different space labs. So one was on the Chinese space lab TG2 and the other was the Chinese recoverable satellite SJ10. And both of these are just like circling above the Earth with that microgravity that Joram mentioned already. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and so both of them are satellites, so they're not attached to something like the International Space Station. They are sort of self-contained labs that fly uh, in in an orbit, which I find in in itself quite amazing that you build Mm. sort of, because you can't have a researcher up there, you can't have a postdoc there that takes care of it or a PhD student, which would be a cool PhD project, but you have to sort <laughs> of build a setup that can be, that drives on its own, like that works on its own, that can be monitored from from Earth and so on, um, that you can actually get your readouts. So just like the setup, I found find already quite interesting. I think we should also briefly say what long day and short day means. It's, um, I think short day is usually, um, no, I shouldn't lie. What is it? A 10-hour light period and 14 hours darkness. And long day I think is usually 14 hours of light and 10 hours of darkness.
1: I would say short day is usually or 8, eight hours. and 16 and long yeah. is 16 and 8 but it can also, it can depend it can be 12 and 12. I actually didn't look what they specifically did on yeah. this paper but which just, was kind was, of bad of me.
0: I mean it doesn't really matter uh, a lot if it, what it exactly is but it just means within a 24 hour period you have either um, a longer night or a longer day um, and this, and the plants resp- respond to that. And usually, like, out in nature, it's the transition from sort of winter or spring when the days are short towards summer when the days are long. And that triggers responses in the plants.
1: Mm-hmm. And one thing you should do um, is check out the, what Joram just said, this, this way that they grew things on um, these space satellites. Go and look at their figure. I think it's figure one in the, um, in the manuscript. It just shows kind of this box setup, this like very complicated setup they need to do just to grow a couple of Arabidopsis plants, and it's quite cool.
0: Yeah, with like um, a camera yeah, monitoring says- it. Mm. Actually, two cameras. Yeah, and it's
1: 16-8 eight and 8-16 eight, is the long and short day. So that's kind of the, the standard-ish for Arbidopsis. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, they had two different setups in the the two different satellites. So on the TG-2 space f- um, flight, they actually um, germinated and grew kind of the plants normally on ground and got them up to the Rosette stage and then basically shoved them on this satellite just before it took off from land. And then the kind of more growth and the bolting, this flowering um, development happened in space. And in the other experiment, no, sorry, that was the SJ-10. So that was the SJ-10 where they grew it mostly on ground and then shoved them in. So they were loaded into the, um, this control scenario 24 hours prior to liftoff. And on the TG-2, which was the second one, they actually grew them seed to seed um, in space. So there was two different conditions they had there.
0: And I think it's important to have both conditions because, um, like, if you want to have something, measure something with gravity, the takeoff conditions, I think, might be a big influence on your experiment, right? You have, like, suddenly a large burst of gravity when the the uh, satellite takes off with a rocket. Um, So if you germinate them in space, you can uh, uh, alleviate or eliminate... Uh, any influences from the actual launch into space, then they start growing in zero or almost zero gravity um, and they don't experience anything else during their life.
1: And that's something that the authors actually said was quite cool. They said there's not that many... Um, experiments so far which show more long-term seed-to-seed kind of development of plants in space, which is, I mean, it's because it's insanely expensive to grow things in space, obviously, so this timing matters. But, I mean, if we are looking in a future, hypothetically, where we want to grow plants not on Earth, we do need to know that they will be able to go through their entire life cycle in different gravity situations, um, not just one certain part. Okay, so the results... What were the results?
0: So for <laughs> for the long day uh, experiment, um, the amplitude of this, uh, the plants that were in space, so the sort of the the extent of the movement um, was around 35% smaller than what happened to the plants on the ground because here they also had ground controls. Um, they were talking mm. to Major Tom a lot. And, um, <laughs> no. S- sorry. Yeah. Sorry for the bad pun. <laughs> not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> um, so <laughs> There's not even r- a pun, d- isn't there? It's just... It's just a, a reference. bad reference. Anyway, they had mm. plants growing at the same time in comparable conditions underground, the and then they could see how the difference are between the two, and they could see that in space, the plants would move thirty five percent less. Uh, so the uh, the extent of the movement, um, not mm-hmm. not the frequency of the movement.
1: And that was actually under both the the experiment, the SJ ten, where they grew them only after Rosette stage and also in the TG-2, was it called, where they um, were growing their whole life on the in space. So in both cases, under the long day, they saw this decrease, smaller modulation of amplitude compared to the ground controls. Um, the short day one, they also saw a reduction in the SJ-10, but in the TG2, they couldn't see anything because the plants just grew slower in space. Mm. And the, uh, well, no, they grew slower in short day because obviously there's like less light and plants just grow shorter in, in short, uh, slower in short day. But also Arabidopsis um, can like long days to flower sometimes. So maybe it didn't um, kind of do this bolting, this floral transition. So they never actually saw the, um, this floral stem, and that's what that's what they were watching. So when they were looking at this circummutation, they were looking at this this inflorescent stem kind of swinging round and round. So they they couldn't see that in the TG2, but it was also less in the SJ10. Um, but in the SJ10, they also found that the short day conditions um, plants had kind of weird morphology. So they had this thing called orfo- automorphosis, where. Um, the plants basically have weird growing stems, like they're not growing properly upwards towards the light, they're kind of just like chaotically Mm. growing, um, Mm. which didn't happen on the plants on the ground. So this was a thing where gravity seemed to have an impact, but in the long day conditions, this wasn't a problem, but in short day, it was a problem, which might be linked to how fast the plant was growing, but could also be linked to the gravity and the circummutation, maybe, the authors posited.
0: What they also found was that the uh, infradian rhythm was magnified in the the long day. And Tegan, what is the infradian rhythm? Because I don't know.
1: (laughs) They saw an infradian rhythm, which is just that they saw a rhythm that is like longer than circadian. So they um, had this, this (laughs) infradian just means like, it's a fancy way of saying, not 24 hours, a magnitude of more than 24 (coughs) hours. And in fact, it was 21 days, which is quite, A lot longer than 24 hours. And this is where it gets a little bit weird because um, this is something where they suggest there could be a link to like environmental periodic changes in gravity, maybe even on the ground, which might be tidal or lunar tools. And this has been suggested by people in the past, but there is not any evidence in the literature as far as i can tell
0: to put that into like simpler words which means that either the tidal waves or the moon has an influence on plants that are not growing on the moon or in tidal regions because they change sort of the the microgravity um, around like in the places where the plants grow and you have this effect uh, sort of exaggerated when you grow them in microgravity when you sort of remove the general pull of the earth by spinning around the earth um, but you don't remove the changes in gravity from the moon being closer or further away or from the mm. waves on earth responding to the moon's gravity pull and yeah as you said this is something that has been discussed and suggested a lot there's also a lot of esoterics around it um uh, around the idea of growing plants in certain moon periods um because the moon has some sort of of effect i think in the paper they also mention ideas that it's lunar illumination so that the nights are brighter when there's a full moon and the nights are darker when there's a um uh, what is it a crescent moon or new moon
1: crescent moon yeah, yeah crescent yeah.
0: moon yeah um so anyways the idea that the moon has an effect on plants has been suggested many times from many different mm. sort of sources some of them more trustworthy than others to put it like mildly um and so here in the study uh, they they mentioned that as well and yeah as you said there's no real other proof for it as far as we know there's nothing um, mm no no solid proof that says like yeah actually the moon has a sort of
1: but then they're basically arguing here that you wouldn't see it very well on earth because the gravity gravitational pull is so strong that you miss the microgravitational pull of the moon but then when the plants themselves are under like less gravity then the the relative impact of the moon is higher and that's why you see it more basically this is kind of one is that that's kind of what i'm getting from this paper which again like it's an idea that's been around for a while I'm not so, I'm not sure, <laughs>
0: but yeah. yeah,
1: But they I also, I mean, in, in fairness to the authors, they don't say this is what's happening. They say this is something that could be happening. So they're not, um, there's no crazy talk here. It's just like, this is yeah. something uh, that's been posited before by other people.
0: And I think it's plausible that the moon has an effect when you have such a special environment like a microgravity environment Um when you are mm. around, I think somewhere I read like uh, ten to the power of minus four G. So usually on Earth we have one G. One that's the, the like pretty much the definition gravity. Of, of gravity. Of mm-hmm. gravity, and so we are, is it four or five magnitudes lower um, than um, I think it's four magnitudes lower, uh, and then I can imagine that something like the moon can have a comparatively large impact in this specific experiment whether or not that has any real life impact on earth i think that's still very much up for debate um and Mm. we don't have anything any conclusive thought about this but so so what did they find in in summary
1: Okay, so they said that the long day photoperiods could reverse the microgravity effects, which are giving this weird automorphosis, this weird growth, which is not growth towards the light or not growth in the right gravitational direction in the short day photoperiods. um, The inhibiting microgravity... um, No, no, microgravity inhibits the amplitude of this circummutation. Uh, and this was worse when the plants were grown on the short day, although this is obviously could also be related to the ro- the rate at which um, the plants were grown. So, this would change then, anyway, the starting circumnutation, which might mean that there's like a different level of effect, I guess. Um, and then that there was this inhibition of the circumnutation in microgravity, either when they were grown just short term or also long term, seed to seed. And again, this is something which the author said. Their study was kind of unique because they did this seed to seed growth and it's not been done very much. So, yeah, all in all, it's quite an interesting thing. I think it's always fun when people try to put plants in space because it's quite like a. I just can imagine myself as a PhD student being like, hey, boss, like. I can't work out what's happening with my phenotype. Is it okay if you know you grow it under all different conditions to try and see if your gene of interest has an interesting phenotype? And it's like, okay, I grew it short day, I grew it long day, I grew it high light, I grew it low light, I grew it fluctuating (laughs) light, and then like, did you grow it
0: (laughs) microgravity? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah what about the International Space Station and then like <laughs> brilliant idea Tegan straight to <laughs> like science publication <laughs> like yeah
0: yeah um, yeah I don't think we will
1: see all of the that, things you happening
0: very soon and microgravity becomes one of the standard methods I think like what we saw in recently but is you know
1: like standard is only defined relative to what everybody else is doing in the yeah. field right so if suddenly everybody is doing it then the reviewers like can you imagine reviewer number three like this is a brilliant study however I cannot believe that Joram Schwarzmann Has refused to test his plants under microgravity. Everybody knows that photosystem one mutants grow slightly slower under microgravity. (laughs) It's (laughs) a natural adaptation to microgravity. (laughs) 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 Yeah, specific to the photosystem one mutant and every other plant.
0: (laughs) But like some some of these like more strange things make their ways into standard methods. Like fluctuating light is one of these things that for a long time we're were technically hard to do. So the idea that light is not constant out there in nature because it changes with clouds or with like foliage on top of that, where then you have like sort of random this uh, random shadow drop casting on the plants below and the plants have to deal with that and they can within a very short time frame get a lot of light or very little light and we grow them usually at constant light but now with like the advent of led lights and microcontrollers and things like that suddenly this has become something from a very strange field of research Mm. where you can now actually be reviewer three and ask like but what about fluctuating light how does your mutant behave then Um, So yeah, but I think for microgravity, it's still a long way (laughs) until we get there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that was circummutation and growth of inflorescent stems of Arabidopsis thaliana in response to microgravity under different photoperiod conditions. It was by Yuan Yuan Wu um, and colleagues from the University of Chinese Academy of Science in Beijing. And it came out, oh, this year, sorry?
0: Yeah, did you say where it was published?
1: yeah sorry in life um and this year so last month or this month um 2020 in life and we'll put a link to the paper anyway in the show notes This is where the fun- So we might have mentioned that we've changed the format of the podcast once again, because we're trying to work out something that works (laughs) properly. So now we're doing every second podcast has us talking about a paper and fun facts. And the alternative ones have, the alternating ones have kind of the other little sections, segments that we have. So our favorites, um, non non-why scientists, our favorite plant and our cognitive bias, and also some more fun facts, though that's what's happening now feel free to shout at us if you hate it
0: yeah but maybe we'll listen to it maybe we won't although we got some cool feedback recently right that we uh included um uh anyway the one thing that i want to to mention is um people uh, reach out to us and say that listen to the podcast with kids which i find is great and we swear too much, and I think that's a very fair point. Um, so I pledge from now on to swear less, <laughs> and if I swear, um, uh, I try to yeah, cut I'm it down. Yeah, I'm going to bleep so out if, my swearing. If if you find if you find from now on things that I missed in the edit, just like drop me a quick note, and I'm very happy to like change that and put the <laughs> thing Call on him the server. beep <laughs> beep beep. Have, beep. A, have a child-friendly uh, podcast be- because I like swearing a lot, and usually I think. Um, like I don't take offense in swearing and I'm rather annoyed by people who do but in a context of listening with kids I think it doesn't take anything away from us if we try to swear less so I'm really happy to do that in the future there's
1: only one thing like I really like I swear probably too much I again I don't take offense with swearing I find people who especially take offense with women swearing to be the worst Um, (laughs) if you don't like swearing that's fine but if you prefer that women don't swear and you're okay with men swearing you're a horrible person Reevaluate re- your life um the one thing i do want to say is that the motto of this show is don't be a dick so we have to keep that in i think that's yeah. something
0: i think that's like, something we have to I discuss really internally because i'm also not aware like i don't know which words <laughs> are fine and which words aren't fine like i know some of the harsh words i'm quite sure um should we just like
1: say them all just now and discuss if that's okay, <laughs> I okay. Know, and then later <laughs> we'll discuss
0: which one we can say so we will hear like a, a, a section of beeps and eventually it will become not a beep anymore that's in the okay words no, um, I think like like hell and damn and things like that I don't know how problematic they are like I know like F word and C word and all of these things um, they don't necessarily yeah. need to be said
1: I do like don't be a dick though I really like. Yeah. I really think that should be everyone's life motto like, because I, I quite strongly, I, I believe in people's ability and right to do many things. People say, oh, but I can do this or like, it's possible for me to do this. And it's like, yeah, you can do a lot of things. I mean, you can, you can make the choice to, you know, dress up in somebody's national costume. If your people have recently annihilated all of their pe- people, you can do that. Like legally it's within your right, but maybe just don't be a dick. Like just, yep. just don't like, yeah. Uh, okay, um, <laughs> fun stuff. Something I got really into in this last week of staying home and being in isolation. We promise we're not going to talk too much about Corona this time because Yoram yeah. did something on Twitter and asked you guys how you're feeling, and most of you are fed up. But I did spend I mean, a lot I'm of fed my up time as well. in
0: that. like I yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Um, I just spent a lot of my time in isolation getting really into horoscopes. So, Yoram, <laughs> Oh, no. So, that's why you chose the moon paper. <laughs> so, Yoram, could you just tell me what your star sign is and I'll read out your horoscope.
0: Is it in in English? Is it Pisces or Peace? I don't know what it, the way it's pronounced. Pisces. Yeah, it's Pis. P- Pisces. I'm. Pissy.
1: No, it's, <laughs> it's Sorry, Pisces. Sorry, did I have to bleed? And that? that's going to be beeped out. <laughs> um, well, what is the proper yeah, pronunciation?
0: So, like, Pisces. Pisces. Because obviously, I I, I had mean, Latin I in schools. Kn- I can say that it's piscis if you pronounce it in a Latin way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, I'm
1: Australian, so nothing I say is the right way of saying English. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. so
0: yeah, I'm the, I'm the little fishies. So
1: you're born. You're born in. Um, what month? March, February. February. We just had your birthday, and you're you're the fish. So your horoscope is this week. You'll be spending time in your home.
0: <laughs> and that's the oh, only time. Oh, that's true. <laughs> so maybe I should listen to the stars more often because they they've been right this time. So they will be probably right every time.
1: It's the only time I've ever cared about um the horoscope. Somebody had a post on Instagram, and just every single one was this week. You'll be spending time in your home, and I was like, <laughs> yes yes it's so great and otherwise I don't care and if you put your horoscope on your dating profile I don't care about you I'm sorry I know that makes me a judgmental person but I don't care what sad sign you are it means nothing about you as a person yeah unless you're a Scorpio in which case it means you're the best snap 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 doing little Scorpio hands but
0: only if you like do the Scorpio move at least once a week of like snip snip snip, snip with hands? Your hands. snip
1: snip snip. <laughs> snip 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 snap snap and i just knocked my microphone out of my face all right what's your
0: fun i fact? just wonder what i should have to do then as a fish should i like do like fishy like s- slithering from time to time no
1: i think you should thrash on the ground like you've been like <laughs> put, like put on land yeah, yeah. <laughs> just whenever your wife comes into the room kind of like fall off the couch onto the ground and kind of like, <laughs> like
0: flop, thrash flop, around uh, <laughs> there's my, my favorite pokemon is carpador because it has this one attack it's called splash and it doesn't do anything and that's my, <laughs> my experience um Mm. and then when you train it which is really hard because it can't do anything it can't win any fights but if you like sort of carry it a lot it turns into one of the strongest pokemon ever so that's pretty there's a life lesson somewhere there like you can be very uh, useless for a long time if your friends carry you you'll emerge as like a powerful dragon that will be then more powerful than all your friends anyway so my perfect (laughs) there's been a study that I found an article on ScienceMag that's just not the, the uh, about a study that's been published on BioArchives and um, this study looked at the impact of preprints on the quality of published papers um, so maybe mm-hmm. f- just as an explanation like um, usually when research is published it goes through a process called peer review when uh, up to three independent researchers have a look at the study and try to sort of take it apart and approve. Either like approve it or find things that have to be um, uh, improved uh, so it can be published. And this sort of ensures that there is um, like less individual uh, mistakes or problems that get then into published research because then you have other people looking over it and being very critical about it and uh, asking whether or not it's plausible what you've been doing if you use the scientific method right. Um, but it's a process that's that's long. It can uh, it is costly depending on the journal you publish in, and there's a lot of factors around it. So in recent years, uh, bioarchives has become popular where people publish preprints, so sort of constructed full papers um, that haven't gone through peer review yet, and so they publish them there, mm-hmm. and so the the not, the. The knowledge about the science is already out there and the idea about the preprint is that you sort of take ownership as well so the you you can't really be scooped anymore so you um if somebody else publishes, tries to publish the same thing yeah, that you've you're, been studying you're, let's on.
1: Let's just say that you're peeing on the territory or like this is your arm's territory. Yeah,
0: you said this is mine, like I've been working on this thing. Uh, I'm about to put it into the peer review process but it can take, I don't know, up to a year in some cases or even more. Um, so mm-hmm. I already put my findings out now. Everybody knows it's ha- it hasn't gone through peer review but it's already there so you can already read it um, and maybe even start building on it. Um, but the lack of peer review is problematic, right? Like there can be stuff that's wrong in it,
1: yeah, and the problem is that sometimes um, <clears throat> reputable news sources like Fox News pick up preprints that, like, for example, deny climate changes is um, caused by humans or make yeah. outrageous statements which would never get past the peer review process. They just, they're just not good science and therefore they would never get published in a reputable journal. But because they look like journals on, like, the original was Archive and then, like, now BioArchive for our field – People think that they're real, and that can be very misleading for the public who is not as familiar with this topic, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, and we also, like we talked about some bioarchive paper in the past. Um the, the story about pennycress about a year ago now. Um, yes. was p- first published on bioarchives and then later went into Nature Food was the journal, right? So
1: Which makes me think we are very wise and filled with um <laughs> what's it, intuition, premonition? <laughs> Womb feelings.
0: <laughs> um yeah so the, i just want to stress like many of the preprints they go into peer review and will be published and so um they get the 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 critique from other researchers um but they are it just. Many? Published do we early. know
1: what the proportion of things that About, are on um
0: 75 percent, i think is what i read oh, in this that's article cool. here um mm-hmm. all, around, around two thirds to three quarters of uh, all st- researchers so uh, anyway this study looked at the fact like does putting them into peer review actually improve the quality of these um, papers or is the preprint enough like is the peer review mm-hmm. adding something to it and because it's really hard to measure things that are sort of subjective quality like better style of writing better conclusions they uh, first had a look at things like that are very technical so did for example the materials and methods improve and so on Um, Uh and other sort of additional things that helped the reproducibility of the study by adding more details and they could find um that there was only a very small increase but there was a significant increase um, uh, Uh that they um that they saw after peer review
1: when you say a small increase they're they're quantitating this somehow they have like numbers attached how do they yeah, do that
0: they created a sort of uh questionnaire Is the wrong word but like a list of quali- like cr- uh, criteria based on criteria okay. that you also find in many um journals so they sort of integrated many different uh, rules that journals put out what the quality has to be and then had this sort of a checklist and went through the papers and see how well they fitted there got gave them scores and then did the same thing when they were actually published uh-huh. uh, after peer review and they could see that they got a little bit better uh, but not uh, not a lot but they they stress that this doesn't mean a peer review doesn't do much it's just that a lot of the things a peer review does are hard to measure um, mm-hmm. because they are sort of like refining the conclusions that you make and things like that where you can't easily put a number on it and just say, ah, yeah, now the paper is 10% better because the conclusion is phrased in a different way. Um, that's mm. maybe more stringent. I mean, often
1: the point of the peer review is not to make the conclusion be phrased differently or change. It's to make there be more support for the conclusion. So like, yeah. it's exactly the same conclusion. It's just that now you have that one extra thing that makes it less easy to find another conclusion like it makes it yeah it's easy to have an alternative
0: conclusion but also that is really hard to quantify and so that's why they studied on yeah. some of the things that are easier to quantify um and they also said like this is a starting point and now we can like build on this um and like understand much more like the impact of preprints but i just i i quite like this because it's like shows that preprints they have a place and they're already quite good um obviously with the exceptions that we talked about before but in general um a preprint is often already pretty close to a proper published paper um still I, like, yeah, I i want to stress that i i care very much for like a good pre- peer review process so, yay
1: yeah. peer review <laughs> yeah um I was looking at some random stuff. I'm not even sure how I found this, but I found a it was definitely related to the virus, um coronavirus, and I found a review from I don't know, a long time ago, 2000 and and and, and a few 2000s. Um And it's called Move Over Bacteria, Viruses Make Their Mark as Mutualistic Microbial Symbionts. And I haven't finished reading it. I was just having a quick flick through it. But it's basically trying to make an argument for the fact that we often demonize demonize viruses as like the worst thing that can happen because it's one of the things we have the least control over at the moment in this world and probably will for a lot of the future. Um, And bacteria these days, they, mean bacteria also cause disease, but we also know all of a lot of good bacteria, which are forming symbioses, not just in our environment around us, but obviously in the human body, we have thousands or probably, I don't know, millions of bacteria in our gut, in our intestine, in all of our crevices. Um, So, but viruses don't yet have that kind of good, reputation as being also possibly beneficial so this is just kind of a review going through some different viruses and one really cool example is that um in some plants viruses can ameliorate the effect of abiotic stresses so i'm reading here and it says um few plants can grow in the high soil temperatures found in the geothermal soils of yellowstone national park however one plant is commonly found in these hot soils a tropical panic grass The grass is colonized by a fungal endophyte that is in turn infected with a virus. All three viruses, virus, fungus, and plant are required for survival in soil with temperature of more than 50 degrees. So um, this is a link to another paper, which was a a study that was conducted in 2007 um, by Mikez et al. And I want to look into this a bit more, but it was just kind of a nice idea of viruses being our friends too sometimes Mm -hmm. or doing some cool things sometimes as well. So
0: yes. Uh, Yeah, I try to (laughs) copy and paste stuff at the same time. And um, my brain is not good enough for that. Stop it. Um, I have something uh, very short. I sent it to you earlier today as well. Um, The famous YouTube channel, Community Channel, uh, which is, uh, I think she's Australian and she's doing uh, comedy on YouTube for for ages. Uh, I think she's been around since the early days of YouTube. And she um, recently emerged from like a three-year break Um, and I watched her like a live stream during the isolation and so on and um, yeah she she is still quite funny but this the YouTube algorithm then started showing me all the videos of hers and there's a a video that's uh, three years old now Um, it's called the plant killer and we'll link that because it's just very funny it's about uh, uh, about her being absolutely incapable of keeping plants alive at home Um, and whenever people bring her plants the plants immediately die in her hands, and it's uh, quite a funny skit that involves her being a gangster that takes care of unwanted plants and people like take it to her because she's a plant killer and if a plant acts up like she she can defy it's any plant. get them. um so yeah that's uh I mean it's a video from uh, two thousand sixteen um and I quite like it, and I like the whole channel it's a shame that she's not on YouTube anymore, but I think she has good reasons for it so Let's just cherish the old stuff that she produced. It's fun.
1: I've got some more good news, which I think I found from The Guardian originally, but it comes about a paper that was published in Nature yesterday. Um, and the paper is from Banerjee at al. And it's called A Pause in Southern Hemisphere Circulation Trends Due to the Montreal Protocol. And any of you who are familiar with the Montreal Protocol will know that this was one of the most successful kind of group agreements that we made to stop screwing things up in our environment. The Montreal protocol specifically involved trying to use less man-made compounds like CFCs or HF HCFs. HCFCs. Um all these nasty things, which used to be in fridges in like the the 80s, which basically mm-hmm. killed the ozone layer. So there's a big, there has been this big hole in the ozone layer, particularly above Australia and um, Antarctica, which just basically that's in a whole lot of UV radiation and is very dangerous for people, causes a lot of skin cancers, etc. But it's just generally not ideal for our world. And the Montreal Protocol was this um, agreement that many countries made to phase out these CFCs and friends. And it's been really successful. So people actually followed their agreement in the protocol and did what they were supposed to do. And this new publication shows that the hole is basically has the, the smallest size it's had since 1982. So that's what 40 years basically it's. So it's now the ozone hole is closing up again because we've stopped using these ozone depleting um, chemicals and it's yeah now as small as it's been since the the early 80s so this is super amazing news and kind of a success story that shows that we can reverse some of the damage we've done to the environment if we try really hard.
0: I found a thing about uh, the impact of website sizes and framework size and so on on climate change and um, it's from uh, it, it was freed from the load, tweeted from the low tech magazine that we mentioned before with that, solar powered um, server. Mm-hmm. And it's about the idea that if, um, if, especially when you are, uh, if you're a developer and you write a piece of code that then um, uh, many people use, for example, if you write a WordPress plugin that's used on 2 million different websites, uh, each um, like each kilobyte that you write in there will be loaded two million times, and so that means that if you would shave off just like 20 kilobytes of your um, of your plugin that is distributed, that will amount to like uh, 3,000 kilograms of CO2 per year that you save by that, and this is just. Um, I've just found that an interesting thing to think about because we often think now with like increasing um, like disk spaces and so on we don't care a-, a lot about like if it's something is a few kilobytes bigger or smaller but in on the internet where you deal with like thousands or millions of people downloading things from websites by just going to these websites if each of them has to load a couple of megabytes of some of like ads or javascript or whatever this amounts to a ton of unnecessary um, like power that's used for like transferring the data for the the server farms to to host this and so on. Um, so it's actually a very big impact of comparatively small changes by writing efficient code. And just like this this thought that we can make the internet a bit more streamlined, a bit nicer. And there's a website it's called websitecarbon.com where you can put in a website and it tells you how good it is and i put in plants and pipettes and unfortunately this web page is dirtier than 56 percent of web pages tested but it doesn't really give me anything that i can do about it i try to figure out now what i can change (laughs) to make our website greener Um, it it says things like um, remove images and so on because obviously they take a lot of space yeah if you look at our website without (laughs) images not great so um, yeah I think about that and maybe by next week or in a, in a while when I have time um, our website can become greener but I just like the idea of being aware uh, and conscious of the things like it might just be like a silly website but if it gets accessed a lot it's actually a lot of CO2 equivalent that's emitted by it
1: uh, I have one more stupid thing and then I have a cat fact okay the stupid thing is there's a moth which is called a lion's mane moth, and it's really, really cute. It's like a little moth, and then he has a lion's mane. And go and Google this because it made me smile. Just like he's a moth, but he's also kind of a lion. <sighs> it's a beautiful idea. I'm okay, looking this at it. Makes yeah, it's <laughs>
0: actually it's actually really cute. I hate moths, and today for some reason it's I saw cute. like two different things uh, of like moth gifts with like these giant. I know it is called like a Hercules moth or something. Like one of these things Uh are like bigger than a hand. Um, Uh Find that. And you
1: felt menaced. You felt personally attacked. Yeah.
0: Attacked. Not attracted. Attacked. Very much attacked. Uh, (laughs) Attracted. um, I just. Yeah. We sometimes have like moths flying against a light bulb. And if that thing would fly against a light bulb. It would just like smash the thing to pieces. It must be like (laughs) five kilograms or whatever. Anyway. Lion's mane moth. Really cute.
1: You got any more facts? No. Otherwise, I've got a cat I, fact. I don't
0: have any more facts.
1: Okay. I'll do my lame cat thing. And then, so it's it's not really a cat fact. It's more just that my housemate sent me a website called www.procatenator.com. I don't know if you know this one already. Just type it in. So www, and it's like proc- procrastinator, but instead of crastinate, it's catenate. Mm-hmm. So procatenator.com. And then press
0: enter. Yeah, it's loading a cat and buffering a song, which um, sounds...
1: It does take a little while. Terrifying.
0: It- Almost there.
1: Oh my Just goodness, it's very slow. Just after I talked slow. about to- spending
0: <laughs> sure. of data transmission. <laughs> it's loading yeah, now this like is
1: definitely gigabyte that
0: gigabytes of things. I mean... The-
1: well, the, n- the nice thing is it's in an endless loop. So it's basically, <laughs> I mean, it shows a cat doing a movement it's a GIF of a cat doing a movement, and it links it to a song. And most of them are kind of like minimalist electronic music, but also some kind of old, like. Anyway, guys, just go and look at cats. It's cats doing things, and it's music while cats do things. And if you're feeling a little bit shut in and like you're going to go crazy, and you think you know what, instead of going regular crazy, I want to go like crazy Catwoman crazy. Go to www.procatnator.com and join us in our insanity. That's all. Yeah. Yoram, go for your fact. <laughs>
0: um before (laughs) everybody's i have to say like i found it hard to find good facts and now it's now i finally loaded. i had to like turn off my ad block
1: okay can you you have to let all of the viruses it's probably like letting viruses onto your computer
0: Uh, it's the bloodhound gang and a rabbit attacking a cat gif (laughs)
1: Okay, that doesn't sound very nice. That sounds mean. Um, do this in your own time now, Yarm. You've got a cat fact to <laughs> give us.
0: You sent me down this journey. My, my cat fact. <laughs>
1: too many of my facts are very visual. It's <laughs> just like, so it's go perfect, look at moths. It's Guys, perfect
0: for a podcast. Go, go
1: stare into the eyes of a moth. Isn't the moth pretty? It's I love moths. <laughs>
0: i just I, I struggled this week to find something that's not virus related because pretty much all of my news streams wherever i look it's just that one topic um but then i um did the thing that i should have done weeks ago which is just put uh, a cat into a google news search and i found an article on cnn which was just published um so actually it wouldn't have helped me if i would have done this earlier um about
1: oh my goodness you're <laughs> good start
0: <laughs> and then and then i found 20 dollars um <laughs> there it is. there's my tab um so the the thing is called the mystery of madagascar's forest cats and it's an article about uh-huh. a study that has just been published um about the mystery of madagascan forest cats because there are cats in the forest of madagascar and if you ever played pandemic you know that madagascar is one of the key things that hardly anything can reach because it's an island off the coast of africa so um stuff has to go travel by sea there and for, and there are lots of feral cats there but they're not in uh, in endemic. endemic they're not they don't, belong, they don't there. belong there but they also look different from all of the house cats that the people have there so they they put up cameras and took pictures of these cats which like is the best thing you do when you have a cat you take a picture so they put pictures in the forest uh, cameras <laughs> in the forest take pictures of the cats and um yeah they look different from the ones in the population i wondered how and why what happened so they put up little traps with live mice in them and in the article they say like don't worry the mice were safely and sconed in their own comfy little cages with bedding and food so there's like a little like mouse airbnb in a cage so to attract a cat and then
1: I'm sorry, but I think a lot of those mice died anyway from shock as a cat, like, went in there and started, like, attacking the cat. Like,
0: One out of five stars mice for the Airbnb very there. Like, <laughs> had a bad cat food, and like, also but it was a now massive I'm dead. cat. Um, they would try, like, look at me menacingly. <laughs> um, so they found, like, they, they caught a couple of these cats alive and they did uh, blood, fecal, and hair samples and analyzed them. I figured out that. They,
1: and then they killed the cats.
0: Uh, I that doesn't actually say. I hope they re-release them, but they were related to.
1: They're not going to release them into the mean, again. wild again. They're not cats. native. Like Does, they, you don't release them into the wild. They probably eat the lemurs. Are they sure they were even cats? Maybe they were just lemurs with short tails. No, they
0: said they they uh, did the DNA test and the DNA said had DNA test said cat. Definitely <laughs> a lemur. lemur. It's like it's very easy to look at the DNA like of a cat. It only uses the the nucleotide C A and T. C
1: A and T. <laughs> shut up. Shut up.
0: <laughs> so then you know you have a cat uh, DNA in your hand. Um.
1: <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. What does a C <laughs> pair with, Yarn? What does a C even no. pair with? <laughs> Um, so So they had cats cats,
0: and the cats had DNA as evidenced
1: by the non-lima DNA
0: (laughs) that come from the Arabian Sea region including the islands of Lamu uh, and Pate in Kenya Dubai Kuwait Oman and the Persian Gulf Uh, and so they wanted how did this come there and then they could uh, recreate that there were um, ships from Arabian seaports that had marine trade routes um, uh, thousands of years ago uh, from the late second millennium BC through 1862 so for eight they were like trade routes uh, going through Madagascar and they were bringing cats with them And the cats sort of stayed there, and we can now, by doing genetic analysis on them, we can sort of retrace that. And the article ends with uh, the quote that says, "Cats have essentially gone with us everywhere we've gone." Says one of the researchers. We can say that uh, um, we can see that journey of humans and their pets going back pretty deep in time. We know, uh, we now know that these mysterious cats are domestic cats with a really interesting backstory because they came with like, um, Uh. like trade ships, like yeah. Thousands of years ago, so that's thousands of years, like two millennia. Not like ten, but yeah. So mys- mystery of Madagascar <laughs> okay. cats it's, resolved.
1: It's quite cool, but also those cats are probably horrible, right? Like they're probably doing very bad things to the lemurs.
0: I mean, by now been a lot things. of time that they could, uh, the ecosystems could adapt to each other. But yeah, probably pro- feral cats correct, are from. I don't know. Like, yeah, two thousand years. Other things have moved in 2000 years as well. It's fine. It sure is fine. (laughs) It's fine.
1: (laughs) Which, incidentally, is our government's approach. No, okay. Uh, (laughs) I think it's time for us to go. Goodbye, dear listeners. Um, If you want to talk to us or look at our stuff, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram where we're at Plants and Pipettes. There you talk to me.
0: On Twitter, we're at Plants where you talk to me.
1: We also have a website. It's www.plantsandpets.com, where we kind of talk about things that are happening in the world of plant molecular biology.
0: Yeah, um, we you you can reach out to us. I think what I want to do now um, is that I didn't uh, ask you about it first, but I want to ask you guys oh to send goodness. us questions um, specific, like if you have specific questions about plants anything you can come up with send them our way and we try our best to to answer them in the future Um, and also if you have any corrections anything that we got wrong um, any uh, feedback is always very much appreciated but also if you just have a general plant related question and then we can try to answer it here on the podcast don't we tegan (laughs) Yes, (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> as always, um, we love it if you leave any reviews, um, give us ratings. But yeah, also feedback of any kind is usually helpful if it's not abusive. Um, but it can be constructive criticism. Yeah. Just not mean. And that's that's fine.
0: And if our uh, uh, opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And I think we're and through. that's it. Goodbye. Stay safe. <laughs> stay safe. Stay healthy. Bye. <laughs>